Hey everybody, welcome to another amazing episode of The Collective Podcast. I'm your host, Ash Thorpe, joined by Andrew Harlick, and this is going to be episode 110 with prolific texture painter Justin Holt, whose recent credits include Chappie, Jurassic World, and Elysium, to name a few. Justin joins us this week to share his thoughts on the ups and downs of the VisFX industry, the importance of doing what you love, and the state of Hollywood sequel remake culture. So here we go, everyone. Episode 110. Let's roll. Yeah, well, thank you for jumping on this on the show. I really appreciate it. No, thank you for having me. I, you know, I, I, to be quite honest, I hadn't heard of you guys before. So when I looked up um, what you guys are doing and and everything, I was really uh, flattered. So thank you so much. Awesome. Yeah. Well, welcome to the collective family. It's now you're part of the. Um, what do we have? Like one hundred and ten. Yeah, this will be one ten. Yeah. Wow. It's cool. a lot of episodes, but a lot of really great people and some really superior talents and stuff. So. For yeah, sure. Awesome. Uh, Andrew was telling me that uh, you do a lot of a lot of traveling and stuff. Uh, yeah. Well, I did a lot of traveling growing up. Uh, my father is a well, I guess he still is a mechanical engineer. So we moved around the world a lot. Okay. Um, so I got to see a lot of different countries and places very early in life. Um, and then in terms of my professional career, I have traveled quite a bit. Just basically going where the work is. Um, so I'm no stranger to uh, just kind of packing up and and setting down new routes and new cities for a little while and then doing it all over again. Yeah, okay. So you're kind of like, um, I had a talk with uh, uh, Mr. Ross and he was talking about how the VisFX industry, how um, robust you have to be and, and how much you have to change your life. And it's kind of hard for people that have roots, but you're kind of the opposite where you're, you don't necessarily, you're okay to jump around. Yeah. I, th- I mean, I think it comes, it, it definitely, you come to a point in your life where you definitely want to set down roots and you want to have some kind of normalcy and some kind of longevity. But uh, if you don't have the ability to, adapt i think it makes it much more difficult to survive and thrive in this industry based off of how volatile it can be Mm. um but you know there's a lot of people who for whatever reason can't do it whether they have roots in certain locations or family that they can't uproot um you know i feel really bad for those people because uh some of them are extreme talents, but they just can't go where the work is. So, you know, you kind of lose those people in the shuffle. Um, yeah. So what's your thoughts on that? I was going to ask you, one of my main questions for you is, um, kind of your thoughts on the industry. You seem to be pretty embedded with, with it and do work on quite a few of the, um, I guess what you call, consider quote unquote, um, blockbusters, I guess. Yeah. So what's kind of your, your take on where the industry is, where it's going? Uh, it's, it's a it's a funny thing because it it it's difficult to work in an industry where you can explicitly see the shortcomings and and why we're in the position that we're in. Yeah. Um, you know, it's like we're basically general contractors and we have been given a project to build a house and we're given for argument's sake say 
a million dollars to build this house. And all the budgets have been laid out and all the specs have been laid out and we're ready to do it. And then halfway through the project, uh, the homeowner says, you know what, we actually want to add an addition to this house for another, say, $500,000. And we want it to be done in the same amount of time, but for the same amount of money. Uh, and in our industry, we're in the position where we can't fight that. We basically just have to say, okay, sure, we'll make it work. I mean, we can do extensions and there are certain penalties that happen, but ultimately we're at the whim of the studios. So, you know, it's kind of frustrating because, you know, we have all these people working these incredibly long hours, putting in incredible, incredibly difficult creative work. Um, and it never seems to be enough. You know, there always seems to be, how can we get this faster, better, quicker, cheaper? Um, and I don't, I don't know. I don't see an end in sight. I, I think there's definitely going to be a boiling point where things have to change. Um, I'm, you know, anxious to see what happens when that day comes because either the entire industry goes under, uh, which it, to me, I don't think that's a realistic thing based off of how integral the visual effects is into, you know, major quote unquote blockbusters. Um, but alternatively, the, really the only option we have is to band together and say, you know, we, we won't put up with this, but that's virtually impossible because it's a global industry and there's always going to be someone willing to do it for cheaper because they want the work. So I don't, I don't know. It's a, it's a really big unknown. And it does, you know, instill a bit of apprehension for me in terms of, you know, what I want to do with my career and and how long I want to be in this industry. Uh, But for the time being, it seems stable, you know, relatively speaking. And as long as I love what I'm doing, I'm just going to keep on doing it and keep moving forward. Yeah, that's a great way of looking at it. And actually, the metaphor that you're using as far as what a house is, is a great way. It's almost as if though the whole city is built by five people that are owning the houses. Yeah. And so yeah. they're kind of, um, and everybody outside the city that's trying to live off of this is coming into the city and working uh, for these five people. And they're dictating everything and controlling it like a monopoly. And Therefore, you have a lot of these kind of, I mean, it makes total sense, you know, um, a lot of the times with making movies, it's, it's amazing that even a movie gets made. Um, it really is. Uh, given the, just the randomness and the wildness of things and especially certain things when you're having to build worlds, which is a lot of the times, a lot of the guests that we have on um, are building worlds that don't exist. Uh, and so you have to kind of rely on just pure curiosity and uh and seeing what happens and so that's hard to control so i see both sides of it it's interesting to hear your thoughts on it you mentioned uh how long you want to stay in this industry is there do you have kind of like an idea of when you're kind of leaving because i know i have quite a few friends that have left the industry and are totally happy um there's actually uh anthony jones brought up something that was really great a really case great great case study um one time when i was talking to him there was a quite a few artists from ILM that got um, got the boot once uh, like things went went awry, I guess, and as far as budgets and stuff, they got laid off, and they went off and they did their started their own business and they started doing renderings for architectural firms oh. and just slayed it. They killed it and they made fucking tons of money because 
they can bring movie quality renders to right. and to architectural firms. And there's a lot of architecture firms and you can go there and you can contract out for them and that's gold for them. So they'll pay a lot of money. And so it's just a smart way of doing business really, you know? So, yeah, it's funny that you mentioned architectural renders because, uh, my brother, uh, one of my brothers, uh, was an architect for a few years, uh, before the market crashed and he got out. Um, but I remember seeing all these, architectural renders from these top-notch firms and they're pretty shitty and you know i always i remember thinking a few years ago that it would be a great racket to get into for visual effects artists is you know architectural rendering because it's it's relatively very easy setup it's you know it doesn't require too much to get something looking really great especially with these new um physically based renders um and so that's always something that i've uh, I've thought about for, you know, friends and stuff we thought about getting out was, you know, if you want to still kind of do this, but not do it, you know, architectural rendering is definitely uh, a niche market that could definitely benefit from expertise within this industry. Um, There's plenty of things though, too. I mean, a lot of people are needing visionaries and people that can bring uh, things that aren't reality to reality, especially as we move into the next age of um, virtual reality and stuff yes. like that. I mean, that's a whole... It's a whole new market that's hasn't been tapped yet. What I'm getting at is it's good to think outside the box and, um, you know, you can always get your fix on a movie. You can work on at least one movie a year, but then you can spend the rest of your year making a killing off of doing something else, you know? So yeah, it's not, it's not as passionate, but you know, even sometimes these films are, they're not as good as they used to be, or that's just my opinion. So it's kind of, no, hard as I well totally, too. totally agree. It, it's funny. Cause you know, you'll work on a movie for a year or two years and, everything that you see suggests that it's going to be amazing. And then you actually see it in theaters and it's just a total flop. Yeah. How's that feel? Uh, Cause I've had that feeling a couple of times and it's just like, damn it. You know, it's, it stings. Um, but you know, you mentioned before about creating films. It's, it's to me, it's like, it, I, I think of it as the same way as like, you know, having a baby conceiving a child. It, it just seems like such an impossible task when you think about and know behind the scenes on how things get greenlit, how things get, you know, put into place, casting, you know, all that, all the budgets. It's it's really a miracle that any movie gets made yeah. um, at the scope that they get made. And, you know, it's, you just, you never know. I mean, there, there are also movies that I thought were going to be total bombs and you, you put it up on the screen and everybody loves it. Yeah. Uh, so it's, it's just a total crapshoot. Um, and, you know, circling back to the original topic, I think, you know, I have friends also who have left the industry to go into, you know, virtual reality and augmented reality type stuff. And, you know, they're perfectly content. And, you know, a few years back I was thinking, and I did talk to people, you know, going into, potentially, you know, game cinematics and stuff like that. Something that has a little bit more stability and stuff like that. Um, it, it's a tough thing at this point in my life to wrap my head around because I love film so much. Yeah. Um, and <sighs> yeah, <laughs> I'm, the same, I'm in the same position. So. Yeah. It's, it's, it's all about passion, you know, and, yeah. and I don't, I don't do this for a paycheck. I don't do this because I have to. And, you know, it really kind of, it boils my blood a bit when I, when I work with people within my life that, that treat this job like a job and they really don't enjoy it. And so, and I've worked jobs that I hated. I've, I've worked in restaurants. I've worked in valet car parking services. I've worked in, you know, banquet waiting, you know, wearing a penguin suit, working, you know, 
12 hour shifts. I've, I've done really crappy jobs. So that's good to know, you know though. Then you know your contracts. Yeah. You know, so. Yeah. And then, and then you see these people who just can't wait for the end of the day to get out. And, and it really kind of, it frustrates me because there's so many people that are tremendously passionate about this industry and about making movie magic. And, you know, you're basically holding that person up from achieving the dream that they want. Sure. And, and it's frustrating because these people, they hate it, but they won't give it up. Yeah. And it's like, you know, yeah, that, that frustrates that I've seen that a few times throughout my career and it really frustrates me because, yeah. you know, if you don't want to do it, then don't do it. Yeah. I totally agree. A lot of the times, uh, that's one of the things that annoys me most. It's just people aren't being proactive enough. Um, and they're not being honest with themselves. You know, it's like, you know, if you don't like it, don't do it. You don't have, nobody's forcing you to be here. Yeah. Um, you know, it's different if you're, you know, working in a blue collar job where you have no other options. I mean, this is a creative industry. This is a specialized field. Um, so I don't know. I, I digress, but no, it's, it's uh, a good point to bring up though. I agree. Uh, yeah. I have a, I have a hard time with it myself too. And sometimes I catch myself complaining more than I should. And then I go, well, what am I doing to make this change for this? You know, right. For the better being proactive is important. Anybody can sit and complain and critique and analyze and stuff. But um, a, a real person that's doing something will actually um, be proactive and make a change for it. And when you do that, the reward is uh, your own happiness and sanity. But at the same time, like you might be able to find something special for your own self. I think a lot of it's just got a lack of guidance. Yeah. Uh, you know, a lot of people, myself included, you know, when you complain and you get lost in that web, it just shows that you don't know who you are and what you're supposed to be doing. Um, yeah, but you don't, no, totally but you know agree. that you're not supposed to be doing what you're doing. So at least you know that, but the next part is taking the leap of faith, I guess. So, mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, lately, I, in terms of where I see my career going, I think it's, I'm trying to play it a bit more like chess. Mm. Um, because a lot of people, uh, I mean, one thing I learned when I started ILM um, a few year, years back was uh, I worked with a bunch of people that um, they made it a point to create an identity and almost a brand of themselves outside of where they work. Uh, so they're very active in the CG communities. They post a lot of personal work. Uh, they contribute to a lot of you know endeavors outside of their job. And... I'd never thought of that before I got there and it really propelled my career because when I started doing that, I, it opened up a ton of different opportunities for me. Um, everything from authoring Noman workshop DVDs to, you know, teaching online with CG society and, you know, publications and, and, uh, even, you know, being a demo instructor for the foundry, you know, all these things opened up because, I realized, and these people helped me realize that, you know, if this studio goes under for whatever reason, because we can never predict that, if it goes under, what do you have? You know, if you don't have an identity, if you don't have a brand outside of that studio, you're going to be sitting there, you know, with your hand, you know, sitting on your hands wondering, you know, why is nobody hiring me? Yeah. Um, and it's, it's so important. And the, this is what I teach a lot of kids. Uh, I do mentoring up at Think Tank Training Center in North Vancouver, uh, which is a fantastic um, visual effects school. Um, and one of the things I constantly tell them is you have to stay active in the community and you have to build a brand outside of where you work mm -hmm. uh, because this is going to afford you many more opportunities that you didn't even 
know of because of just word of mouth and the way, you know, information spreads on the internet. Uh, and that was invaluable when I was there uh, at ILM because it really made me think about my career and, and, uh, achieving what I want to achieve at, and, you know, next level of things, um, more clearly when I realized that it, that, you know, the studio honestly isn't looking out for your personal best interest. Um, when it comes down to, you know, sorry, we, we can't keep you or sorry, we have to close our doors. Yeah. Uh, so you always have to have that plan B plan C plan D, uh, just in case. Cause you know, fortune favors the prepared. Absolutely. That's great advice. I can agree more too. in creating your own brand or yourself as a, as an entity that's recognizable or, um, identifiable outside of, um, just being kind of like a, a sheep to the slaughter aspect, I think is a very smart, it's a very smart business, uh, move because it makes you relevant and you don't get lost so that when you become like, you know, there's a lot of these personas or these personalities that, um, that I can think of in the industry that can still, I think, maintain and sustain themselves beyond um, working on movies and going to do their own thing, you know? And I think a lot of it is just being able to be identified outside of it, like you're saying. So I think that's really great advice for anybody that's listening to. Um, what would you, what would you do um, as far as like um, offers advice and um, for people that are looking to have a little bit of an edge and create their own identity? Um, you have to, what I've found is I, I follow the trends of what is popular. So you look at these CG communities like ArtStation and CG Feedback, you know, CG Hub when it was alive. Uh, and you see what people not only are posting, but what people are drawn to visually. So lately it's been a huge influx of people doing these, um, trying to recreate these completely photoreal portrait faces of humans. Um, this has been a very popular thing lately. And what I try to do is I find that trend and find what's basically oversaturating the market and oversaturating the message boards yeah. and try to do something that people haven't seen in a while. So I'm not going to just post another CG head because anybody can do really a relatively okay CG head given the right renderer and a little bit of know-how. Uh, but you know what I haven't seen in a long time and what I'd love to see are, you know, more kind of mechanical hard surface type stuff uh, done to the level of, say, a transformer or the level of, say, Chappie, uh, where, you know, it people are still drawn to that kind of industrial, uh, mechanical, robotic, futuristic stuff. Uh, and I try to basically steer it in different directions. So a prime example is, you know, my next Nomen texture title uh, that I'm in currently developing right now will be specifically hard surface texture painting for feature films. Um, because one, that hasn't been done in a long time. Yeah. And two, it hasn't been done well. Uh, so you try to find where the attention is lacking so you can draw people into a different space. And then that will basically, you'll be the light for the the moth per yeah. se and uh you know start creating this the sense that you know what people are wanting next and you know what people are expecting next rather than oh yeah this is not cg head that's pretty cool but you know i kind of forget it the second i see it sure um so in terms of building an online identity there um i think that is a good start 
Um, it also depends on your expertise and where you are. If you're a professional in the industry versus, you know, student in school, um, there's a ton of different competitions out there uh, for people who want to get in the industry or just people who want to get their name out there who are hobbyists that I recommend you, you know, participate in. Uh, because it attracts a lot of attention and ultimately that's what it's about you just want to attract as many eyes as possible to your work um, because it will spread like wildfire if it's good yeah i think that's a great way of looking at it too and playing the market by just visually paying attention what you're saying for me and my standpoint and i do the same thing is just pay attention just look at the trends look where everything's going and either you want to get lost in that wave and enjoy that, or you can go against it and try something else or just do a little branch off and see what's exactly. missing. Like you said, um, the Noman DVD that you're developing right now and stuff, you know, so, um, which is a, which is a great way of, uh, I think, approaching it. It's much more uh, business oriented, but at the same time there, you have to be business minded in order to maintain a uh, living in this industry. And that's just part of it. I think a lot of artists complain and, 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 um, don't want to be, don't want to affiliate themselves with being in business oriented, but I think that's a very big mistake and it should be changed. Um, if you want to be a professional, you know, you just can't, you can't allow yourself to be lazy in any way, you know? Yeah, I I couldn't agree more. I mean, you look at visual effects artists and you look at the structure of it and it is very, very, very similar to the structure of actors or, you know, writers where you have talent and then you have projects. The difference between us, obviously, is we're not unionized. We don't have a SAG guild um, and we don't have managers. We don't have agents. Although there are a few digital artist agencies out there, it's not a common thing. So the biggest thing that I think is lacking in school uh, when kids are training for this stuff is nobody's giving them business-oriented advice. It's all about how to create good art. Uh, Well, you can create great art, but if you don't have a good sensibility for negotiating, you don't have a good sensibility for just general rapport with recruiters and visual effects supervisors and just anybody that you're talking to, you can shoot yourself in the foot before they even see your work. Um, And there's so many artists out there, unfortunately, that don't, you know, they lack a little bit of social skill um, and and they don't know how to conduct themselves and they don't know basically the business side of things. And that's such a huge, um, it's a huge weakness and Achilles heel for a lot of these artists because they're ultimately either they don't get the job they deserve or they get severely underpaid because they didn't fight for what they know they deserve. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's another thing I try to uh, teach some of the students that I see going places is that you have to, you have to be your own agent. You have to be your own manager. You have to be your own publicist and you have to just work. You got to, you know, if you want this bad enough, you got to be on all fronts and making sure that you're taking care of business so you can set yourself up for the best level of success that you can do. Um, And I think it's hugely important. Couldn't agree more. I think it's a really great way of looking at it too. And like you said, sometimes uh, people will shoot themselves in the foot by not speaking up for themselves or representing themselves properly. Um, that's a great point. Do you, I, I have a, quite a few things that I talk about in regards to this. There, there, is there like three, three or four core values that you could uh, pass off as advice from yourself to help people? Uh, help people in what regard? Um, just bettering themselves in their career. Maybe like you're, you're kind of saying like self-value, like give yourself right, value. Right. Like one, that's like a, a, a point I think I guess to make. Yeah. 
and this how to is, do so. So it's not an abstract idea. This is actually right. a resourceful thing. That's what's great about the podcast. It's not like an interview that you read. This is, there's a lot more dynamics to it. So we can get deeper into um, dissecting the principles of these things. So mm-hmm. they, they, be, they become a tool rather than some abstract obstacle. Um, yeah, I could totally elaborate on that. So when I was in school, I had a professor named Joe Pasquale, and he was a very interesting person. Um, to basically paint a picture, I knew this guy for two years and only realized until I left school that he actually was one of the first employees of the digital ILM and he worked on Jurassic Park and he worked on Terminator 2. He was just one of those guys that doesn't flaunt his achievements and he's just more about teaching students. He's very passionate about that. Um, And I took a course of his that had little to do with making art and more to do with how do you conduct yourself once you get the job. Uh, And one one of the values he instilled was you know, you never know what other people are going through. You don't know what's in their life. You don't know the difficulties they have in their personal lives and outside of work. So, you know, the second you're looking at someone and judging them and thinking, hey, you know, this person should be fired. That's the day you shouldn't be there. Yeah. And, you know, that really resonated with me. And I, don't get me wrong. I, I, I falter with that. You know, I do sometimes work with people that I just don't get how they're still here type thing. Um, but I always remember that, you know, I don't know what they're going through and, you know, I, I can't judge them on their work based off of everything. And, you know, it just, it breeds, basically it just breeds negativity and and that negativity spreads like, well, it's a cancer. Yeah. Um, so positivity is such an important thing, especially when you're working collaboratively with so many people for so many hours. Um, the second you start interjecting that negativity not not just verbally or you know even just you know energy wise it it really it changes dynamics um and i've seen it so and it it just becomes a poisonous environment so that was one of the first things i learned even before i got in the industry was that was that you know just you know worry about how you're conducting yourself before you worry about everybody else. Um, and I think that's, that's served me well for many, many years. Um, another thing I would recommend or say that uh, people should think about is um, you should pursue the things that you think about every day. So, you know, when I was in high school and the first two years of my college, I was in a pre-med program for the first two years of college uh, in Virginia. I have another brother who's a doctor, so that's something I thought I wanted to do. Um, And I I very quickly realized that it isn't something I was passionate about and I didn't think about it every day. And then, you know, I, I started to analyze, you know, what do I actually think about every day? I'm not talking about like, oh, I gotta pay my bills or oh, I gotta do this, I gotta do that. What are the things that you daydream about? And for me, I daydreamed basically about two things, films and basketball. I played basketball through high school, through childhood. That was, I always wanted to be in the NBA, which obviously uh, never turned out. Um, But I thought about films every day and I took that and ran with it. And so I had another brother at the time going to the Savannah College of Art and Design for sound design. And I was chatting with him and he's like, you know, if you want to do visual effects, you you should just come here. Because at the time there weren't that many schools, prominent schools, you know, where you could get an actual degree in visual effects. And so I went there, did two years there and, you know, the rest is history. So 
you know, I think passion plays an enormous part in this industry where it comes down to creative thinking and, uh, and and at the end of the day, it's fluff. You know, these are movies, you know, this isn't curing cancer. This isn't, mm-hmm. you know, but, but what it is doing is it's pro- providing a relief. You know, people go see films because they want an escape. And that's what I love about it is that it's not necessary, but it is necessary. And it's always going to be around, you know, the film industry is one of those things that just survives. You I mean, you look at, when the Great Depression hit, people still went to see movies. Yeah. Because they still needed that escape. Escapism, yeah. Yeah, and it's such a powerful thing. You see that in video games. You see it in virtual reality. It's such a powerful thing. And I really, really enjoy being a part of that. You know, whether that's, you know, someone seeing Jurassic World who fell in love with it when they were in a kid seeing Jurassic Park or, you know, kids falling in love with new material, you know, and, and, sparking imagination and, and thoughts and stuff. I th- it's just such a trip for me. So um, passion and, and pursuing what you think about every day is, is a huge part of um, being successful in anything, really. I mean, my father was an engineer, is an engineer for the past 40 years, and he never worked a day in his life because he loved it. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's such a powerful lesson, I think. Um, so doing what you love is very important, I think. So yeah. Absolutely. And then do what you think about most, I think is another yeah. way of looking at it. Yeah. And I, I recently read a quote by Paul Newman, um, that really struck me and it, it said, a man with no enemies is a man with no character. And, hmm. you know, I, I started thinking about that and, you know, I'm not perfect. I, I've made a few enemies in this industry, but the, the point being, you know, you've got to you've got to go out there and not, you can't be afraid to fail. You can't be afraid to, you know, disrupt the status quo if you know that things could be better. Um, And I've come into a lot of different scenarios in my career where I've had to reevaluate pipelines and reevaluate workflows and and assess whether this is the most efficient way to do it. Mm -hmm. And you can't do that without bumping shoulders with people who've been there for 10, 15, 20 years. Sure. Um, and so, you know, you can't make an omelet without breaking some eggs type, type concept. You have to constantly push forward and yeah, you're going to bump elbows. You can't please everybody, but if you know something is right and you, and you know, it's going to be better for everybody else. You have an obligation to at least voice that in some capacity to someone who, is willing to listen. Sure. Um, so I think that's, when do you think there's a point where, you know, you can interject? Uh, that's a good question. Um, the writings on the walls or is that your opinion or because I I fight that as well. And yeah, you, you, you have to, you like, that's a great saying and I couldn't agree more. I I think the, the, the visual effects industry, like any industry, there's, there's a huge web of politics uh, that you have to, one, acknowledge. You have to be aware that it exists. And two, you have to understand the best way to navigate it. Um, I myself, is a, I'm, I'm a terrible person at politics, to be quite honest, uh, because I, I'm a very passionate person. I have an idea. I want to get it done right now. <laughs> and so I tell people, hey, this is going to save us countless hours, save us countless, you know, effort, and it's going to look better. Uh, and it's going to save us money. You know, I, I I try to put it in a way that the producers and other other people can can relate to and ultimately yeah, their values, to, share the values. With yeah. Them. Yeah. But 
you know, I'm brash at times. You know, I, I don't consider the person that had been working on this for 20 years and now all of a sudden it's kind of obsolete type thing. So, uh, fortunately, my current position now, I've been brought into a position where they've actually, one of my jobs is to kind of shake it up a bit and, and look at what's wrong because there, there are people in my organization that have been here for again, 15, 20 years. And they're still the type of people that want change. And they're still the type of people that realize if we don't evolve, we're going to become extinct. So these people, these very select few people have, you know, tapped me on the shoulder and said, you know, we'll back you, but, you know, speak up if you see something that's wrong. Um, nine times out of 10, it goes fairly well, but every once in a while there's there's definitely speed bumps and a lot of other politics that, uh, with people's best interest involved. So the best time to voice it, it's tough thing because I'm in a position where I've been kind of almost instructed to voice it. Whereas if you were kind of a a mid-level artist or even a junior artist, there's no place for you to voice anything, honestly. Sure. Uh, yeah, you're hired to work and you're going to do work and you're going to do what you need to do. Um, but the best time to voice it is either in a forum where people are receptive to it in a position that allows you to do that. Or if you are a junior artist or, or a, even a senior artist that doesn't have a lot of clout, go you know, find the people that are influential and have and that are like-minded. Uh, and just, you know, brainstorm, uh, cause there are people like that at every single studio you work for. Um, there are people like that, that understand that our way is probably not the best way. So if we're, if you come in and you've been at a studio that does it better, we want to know because it's just going to make us even better. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of my perspective on the situation. Well, it's also the passion I think you're talking about. So if, if people are actually thinking clearly and they're hearing you talk about being passionate about what you're doing and, and, uh, clear in your communication, impeccable in your communication with it. I think that's a key thing. I rem- this, when you're saying this, it reminds me, I was listening to, uh, Steve jobs biography and he, there was a moment in the book where, um, there was an artist from Pixar, I think, that it's just kind of like, you know, like kind of a lead at Pixar, but they were debating, um, aspect ratio and mm. the guy was so passionate and he ended up having a pretty big argument with Steve over it because there was some kind of deal. Like if they went with like, I don't know, uh, the older standard, like box square looking right. aspect ratio, they were able to push the film out faster or some, some bullshit like that. But this artist was like, no, you can't fuck with that. Like you have to have the composition at this because this is how this works. And he was really passionate about what he was saying, but he was clear enough about it. And so they left that argument. And then that guy, I think he told John Laster or something like, oh, I can't believe I just had a huge argument with Steve Jobs. You know, like, what am I thinking? (laughs) But then uh, later, Steve uh, made the made the change towards that guy's uh, intention because the guy stood up for himself, spoke for himself and was passionate enough to capture, uh, Steve's curiosity to know that, okay, this is something good. You know, I think even I'm listening to, I just finished up, um, Elon Musk's, uh, book as well. Cause I think it's, 
one thing I wouldn't, I would advise to, to anybody is if you want to be a powerful person, like <laughs> read about powerful people. Cause totally the, the fucking path is there. Like everybody, <laughs> there's been tons of people that have done amazing things beyond way beyond like what this stuff is, which is like making oh, yeah. films and stuff. <laughs> you oh, know? Yeah. I, I, I often think like, wow, I think films are hard to make. And then I, I read Elon Musk's book and I, wow, he's changing multiple industries I know. all at once in a very short time span. Uh, incredibly ambitious and incredibly inspiring, you know, and it's not just him, it's, it's team and people, but it's, you know, we have to have like, you know, a flag that represents a country. It's the same kind of thing. For sure. You know? It's how we identify things. We're not, I don't think, I think that's one thing about us that is interesting. We can't identify, um, multiple things as being one thing. It's kind of hard to kind of consolidate is how I, I think that's a weird human trait that we have, but mm-hmm. anyways, I digress, but I think what you're saying about having character and creating enemies, is just a part of it. I mean, I have them as well and it's just a part of it, you know, like I try not to have as many as possible, but it's inevitable of course, if, of course. You're, if you're pushing, you know, it's like, yeah, people are going to hate, people are going to judge, people are going to question. Um, but at the same time, like if your intention's pure and you know it deep within you that that's what you need to do, then it is what it is, you know? So, yeah. I mean, I, I hate knowing that people don't like me. Yeah, me too. It <laughs> uh, sucks. It, it sucks. But, you know, there's always going to be, you know, you, it, it's not perfect. So you just got to keep moving forward. As long as you keep moving forward, then you'll be okay. Uh, and that's another thing that brings me up to my next point is keep moving forward you know the, the second you feel stagnant is the second that you know things shift from under you and then you're kind of lost so um i don't know i have this weird thing where uh deja vu plays a very strange role in my life um in the sense that for me very early on I realized, or I just acknowledged that whenever I experienced deja vu, um, good things tended to happen. And so, after many years of experiencing deja vu periodically, um, I, I came to this strange theory in my head that every time I experience deja vu, then that's a, an acknowledgement that I'm on the right path. Mm. Um, now, when I don't experience it, and I don't experience it for a while... Uh, then I need to start reevaluating things. So uh, to reverse back to when I was in college at, at, in pre-med, I can't even remember a single time I had deja vu when I was in that program. Uh, but the second I moved to Savannah and enrolled into the visual effects program, I was having deja vu like once every three months. Um, and it's just, it probably, there's no correlation whatsoever, but to me, it, it's, it's a, a, a marker, almost like in, you know, in Super Mario Brothers, when you hit the halfway flag, you know, it's like, oh, okay, I've hit this. And I'm, I know that what I'm doing currently is, is where I need to be. And I, and I got to keep moving forward. Because uh, the second you go backwards, then, you know, you're just regressing. Uh, so anything you can do to keep moving forward is paramount, in my opinion, because as long as you work towards what you want, in my opinion, it will always work out. You know, you just work hard and it'll always work out. I can't think of an instance where it didn't work out for me uh, when I didn't work hard for it. Um, and I think so many people, I think, you know, give up too early or they just dis- get discouraged too early or, you know, whatever happens and they don't see it through to the to the end. Yeah. And they're not even aware how close they are to that barrier. Yeah. 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 And it's like, you know, you just got to push a little bit more, just a little bit more and you'll get there. Um and that's what it's all about. Just, you know, uh, 
opening up new doors, you know, experiencing new things, leading us down new paths. Uh, that's where you can grow and, and excel, I think. Yeah, I think that's a lot of where a lot of these bits and films and things that are coming from that are from our childhood that we really like. You know, I often study uh, George Lucas at the time when he was mm -hmm. incepting Star Wars and stuff. Right. And I constantly am um, trying to put myself back through that situation. And, um, you know, when he was making THX 1138 and... Um, American graffiti and, um, you know, how to pitch and sell star Wars as a concept, because, um, you know, let's use star Wars as a case study and let's use George Lucas as a case study. Cause that might help solidify exactly what you're talking about. Here's somebody that's coming out of the woodworks. It's not like it's an original idea. There's been many space sagas prior, but it's not, hasn't been done like this, you know, and mm -hmm. this, in this level and this caliber. And I, I remember listening to commentary or watching uh, behind the scenes of like Harrison Ford um, and Carrie Fisher talking, kind of talking shit about the script, you know, like, what is this? Like, what are we talking about? Like super, you know, like they're trying to read this thing and take it seriously, but it was hard for them. So they were constantly like razzing George, you know, like, right, giving right. him shit. So if you can imagine them not knowing the potential, what it was that they were creating, um, because Star Wars, as we all know now is, is a fucking classic. It's, mm -hmm. uh, it's like, we could even talk about Jurassic Park and Spielberg and stuff. But I think the reason why I bring George up is he, uh, encapsulates all those things that you're talking about when he was first starting these things out, which is when he made THX 1138, that's when mm -hmm. he was more artistic and he was, well, I guess it's all artistic, but <laughs> yeah. you know, it's in a different realm, you know, he was a very, uh, it's, it's kind of an expression film and he was definitely you know with coppola and all the rest of those guys mm -hmm. those were that was his crew of people um but you know you look at just the way how much how hard it must have been to pull off what he did um, oh yeah um and almost like it's uh, kind of like a curse i imagine i can't imagine what it must feel like to be him and create this industry and then have so much negative feedback and all this stuff but there's got to become a point where I, I well, think I think when you're spending 4th of J July at the Skywalker Ranch, I think you quickly realize that he probably doesn't give a shit about the naysayers. Yeah. I mean, he is awesome. he is so like walking around ILM, the campus there and realizing that all of this, well, not his anymore, but all of this at the time is his. It, it's 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 overwhelming the, the level of success he's seen. So, you know, but I agree. I think coming up to that point yeah i can't imagine what it was like um i mean it's funny you, you talked about carrie fisher and harrison ford you know talking shit about star wars it reminds me of when spielberg was doing jaws mm. and you know they were doing the press junket with all the actors and richard dreyfus famously would go around and just bash the movie mm, and just yeah. say you know i can't believe i did this film don't go see it it's terrible <laughs> and then when people went to see it i mean that film was in theaters for i think a full 365 days yeah it, it was just a monster <laughs> yeah and it's like it's funny that it, what visionaries have and 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 what they can see that nobody else can see even the people who collaborate with them very closely um, and yeah, can't see closely. it right in front of them or yeah. were involved with it. That happens all the time. I think I remember, um, uh, Andrew, who's the main actor in the, uh, that Mad Max movie, the, well, the guy, Tom Hart yeah, Tom Hardy. Tom Hardy. yeah, I think Tom he Hardy, was yeah. publicly doing the same thing about 
Mad Max and he was kind of like, you know, I don't get it. You know, I'm not sure what to think of it because they're out in the desert (laughs) filming for a massive amount of time, all out of sequence, all over the place. And I think he just didn't, couldn't put it together. I I read some, somewhere where the film actually came and took form in the editing room because there was just, I don't know, 500 hours or something of footage, some ridiculous amount. Um, and then, you know, cutting that together, that's a whole different magical art. I, when I listen to Fincher, he, he has a great analogy. When I listen to his commentary, I think it was on his fight club commentary. Any, if you're ever interested in listening to a director, Fincher and really amazing. Yeah. Fincher is uh, very transparent. He doesn't give a fuck and he'll tell you everything. I love he's the way he favorite. does it. Yeah, he's yeah. same same here. I, I I adore the heck out of that guy. I'm not. I wasn't a big fan of Gone Girl, but I think that was a, a strategic move for him. Right. But that's just you know what the hell do I know? I'm just a <laughs> fan from the outside. But right. He said a really great analogy as far as making films. He said, you know, you have stages and it's like a course, and you have you know the beginning stage where you're writing and building and concepting and, and pre-production. Then you have Um, then you go and shoot it and you put that all together. That's a whole different stage, you know, and then you go to the edit room and that's actually where the film starts to become itself. And -hmm. then you go and release it to the world and it becomes the world's thing. And it doesn't, it's not yours anymore. And it's this whole nebulous experience. Um, all along the way, it can be very painful and very trying and very difficult, you know, and, um, it depends, I guess, on your outlook too, you know, um, I've only met a few directors in in my career so far. Um, most of them seemed pretty content, but I I'm not sure if that's their facade or what. Right. Uh, it's hard to tell because they have to be on edge and totally, uh, you know, kind of on a whole different realm of consciousness, you know. But yeah. Yeah, and especially when you get the more successful actors or directors, I mean, they all have people telling them, you know. Yeah. what they should say, what they shouldn't say, their public image and stuff like that. So, you know, a lot of that plays into effect, um, which, you know, I kind of like the form that you guys have here because, you know, obviously I don't have a publicist telling me, hey, don't talk about this, talk about this, you know, do this, do that. Um, and, you know, you can kind of just organically talk about everything, um, which I think is pretty cool. I think it's really important. I think transparency is really important. Even if, you know, half the shit we say is just ridiculous and stupid, there might be, um, three minutes of just pure purity. And that's worth the hour and a half. I think it is. I I totally agree. Like, you know, if the material that I do for teaching and stuff, if someone can learn just a single thing that helps them in their career, I feel like I've, I've done my job. Um, and yeah, I, I totally agree. Um, that's the goal, right? I mean, and a lot of the times too, and I talk to Anthony Jones cause he's quite a prolific teacher and instructor and he will say, you know, um, even if he busts his ass, no matter what, about only about 5% of his class will really retain what he's trying to say. Yep. And, and about 2% of them will take it to the level that he's at basically will match yes. his level. Um, yeah. Which is an interesting thing to think about. That means the fail rate is ridiculously huge, but it, it is super ridiculous. Yeah. Um, you know, I, at the peak of some of my courses online, there are, it's a 35 person C class. Mm-hmm. And when I, the, the one course I was running that was selling out for a few runs at a time, um, of all 35 people, maybe six participated. And I'm talking like the other People literally did nothing. I didn't see any work from them. They didn't respond in any of the threads. Yeah. They just paid for the course and they just sat back and watched it. And it's it's interesting to me that you have these people that 
do that. I mean, you, you can even see it when you go into physical classrooms and you're doing demos and stuff. You can actually see the people that care yeah. and the people that don't. And it's, it's almost it's almost physical. Um, and it's, it's a strange phenomenon. And it's a very, yeah, it's a huge fail rate because I think people get into this thinking it's going to be glamorous in some way. And then when they realize, oh, wait a minute, I got to sit at a computer for 12 hours a day. Um, <laughs> yeah. It loses its luster. But, you know, then you have the people that know the end game. And the end game is working on really cool movies. Um, and I think and, that's a really good, I, like we, saw, we talked about earlier, is having clarity, being yeah. very clear about your intentions. If you're very clear about your intentions, you'll know exactly where you're going to go. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I had a very clear um, defined I write lists and I think lists are incredibly important um, because I have ADD like fucking feverishly. Like it's out <laughs> okay. of control, like it's fucking blistering hot. Um, and if I don't have my lists, I'll go, Oh, you know, and then all of a sudden I'm like building a video game when I should be doing something else. But at the same time, it's, it's fun though. You know, it's, it's kind of how I work. I, I realize that everybody has their own practices, you know? Right. Um, but I think to go back to what you said earlier is just like, do what you think about most or what makes you happy. Um, which this is really simple advice, right? I mean, if I heard this from somebody when I was lost, I'd be like, yeah, well fuck off. Yeah. I get that. You know, like yeah. it makes me happy to lay down and sleep and watch movies. Like, okay. Right. Like what's that right. doing for me? What I'm trying to do is figure out a way of creating and constructing a tool. So those people that are the, the, the 95% in the class that aren't going to go anywhere or do anything with this advice or these thoughts, like how can we tap into helping them even further? Mm-hmm. I think a lot of it's just vision, you know, I think it's just helping people find their vision, help yeah. them see what they're after and the potential. Cause I, I, I really believe that, I mean, maybe I'm just a wishful thinker, but I think most people have the potential to do great things, you know, and, uh, a lot of it's just a matter of tapping into it. I find this when I, um, talk or I would hear talks from guys like Neil Tyson, who can channel Mm -hmm. a lot of really complex information and, and serve it out to people. Um, there's a way to do it. You know, Carl Sagan, for example, too, very complex ideas served in a way that we can all understand it. It's an important thing. Yeah, I mean, that uh, I have a funny story. So when I did my first Noman DVD, um, I was uh, flown to L.A. I was living in, I guess I was living in San Francisco at the time. I was flown to L.A. to go to the Noman uh, school and record uh, the first DVD, all the material and stuff. So in the months leading up to the the flight, I I kind of put together in a physical written list of everything I wanted to say and everything I wanted to do. And I had all the material set up and I was all, I was all good. I was supremely confident that this was going to be great. And I only had two days. No, actually I only had one day to record all the material. I think it was ended up being four or five hours material. And so I get down there, uh, they put me up in hotel, you know, it's all, all that. And so I get to the room and the room that they originally have set me up in, uh, didn't work. And it was a, isolated private room so then they're like well sorry we got to stick you in you know this uh this room with a bunch of students that are working because this is the only area that you can record and i'd never recorded a demo ever in my entire life Hmm. and i was like okay so we go into this room fortunately it was just one other girl in the room sitting about two computers down uh working on a personal project and so i'm getting all this stuff set up and it just hits me like a cold shower that 
I'm really self-conscious now because there's this person sitting next to me. Yeah. And so <laughs> I, I sat there for about 10 minutes, didn't really know what to do. So I, I was like, I just, I, I've got to interface with this girl. So I, you know, got her attention. I was like, I'm sorry. Uh, this is the first time I'm recording a DVD. I'm very, very nervous. So if anything I say during this recording doesn't, doesn't make any sense, please just ignore me. And she was like, no, no, it's all good. You know, it's okay. So that put my mind at ease a little bit more um, until I started recording. And I quickly realized, well, actually to backtrack a bit, Noma DVDs, they, they produce them in two different ways. You can record all the material and then they do this silly fast forward track where you do audio commentary on top. I hate those DVDs because you can't learn anything because they fast forward too quickly. Yeah. And quite frankly, the person who's doing, doing the audio commentary doesn't really remember what they're doing. So they just do a <laughs> brief summary. It's a great point. I really can't stand those either. Yeah. So I made it a point. I got to record in real time, talk in real time and work in real time. Yeah. Um, it's a lot longer. It's but, a lot longer yeah. and it's a lot harder. And so that's the first thing I realized is like, I can't, talk, I can't work, and I can't look at this perfectly designed outline that I wrote at the same time. Sure. And then I started freaking out. I got another wave of a cold shower. I was like, oh my God, I can't do this DVD. I, <laughs> I can't do this. I'm, I'm just going to tell them I can't do it. I can't do it. And so I just kind of shut my brain off and I started working and I did a lot of you know outtakes and I re-recorded a bunch of material. But long story short, my point being, that day I realized how difficult it is to teach something because oh, yeah. in my head, difficult. in my head, I know what I'm doing. Yeah. I, I know what I'm doing, but to verbalize it in a way that makes sense is, I mean, I have such a higher respect for good teachers uh, after doing these DVDs, even the online stuff. Now it's, it's a, it's a talent to be able to express what you're thinking to a group of people that have no idea what you're doing in a way that they can learn. Yeah. Um, and it was a, powerful lesson experience that I, you know, I'll, I'll take away with me forever. But, you know, t like you said, like being able to express complex ideas in a simple way is a very difficult thing. Yeah. I think that that's a really important uh, point to make. And I think it's a very, um, it's a very challenging thing to be able to do and pull off these kind of uh, these tasks and be a good instructor is a, is a very unique kind of power really it is it's a it's kind yeah. of it's a kind of a uh, interesting power really um trying to find the list the name of this book that i was listening to um he talks a bit about um there's these five laws what was it uh andrew do you remember um i was talking about it in the last couple podcasts uh, the fifth to... agreement yeah that's it thank you um it's the fifth agreement have you ever read that book no, I haven't. It's really unique. And he talks about these um, kind of important pinnacle, um, you know, it's it's all biased, obviously, but um, it, it goes really deep into some really interesting things. Talk, talks about symbology and relates it to, to our um, just language in general and how we all agree that everything's, you know, like the alphabet basically is is a is uh, a list of symbols that we all agree that means X. You know. Oh right. And uh, that's one of the concepts he talks about. But in the fifth agreement, there's um, these kind of I can't remember all of them, but one of them is is be impeccable with your word, um, mm. be incredibly clear. The other one is don't take anything personal because it doesn't, nothing really means anything because you right. don't own anything really. You might think right. you do, um, even for like a 
the aspect of people saying, you know, my soul, but you don't own your soul. It actually doesn't even belong to you. It's just this thing, basically. It's kind of, it's really interesting, interesting yeah. really, really interesting kind of philosophy and thinking. Um, it, it's a real mind fuck. And I only listen to that book when I'm able to take a complete clear walk and, um, allow my brain to kind of let it sit in the ether and think about these kind of things. But I, I, right. I think that you might actually, it might resonate with you. I don't, do you, do you read much? Are you into <laughs> It's funny that you, you ask, um, I, I honestly don't read a lot. Um, How dare you? Com- I know, I know. <laughs> coming from a, coming from, a, I, I blame it on the day job. I'm a visual person, so sure, I like sure. watching things. Um, How about Audible or something? Listening to books? Cause... Yeah, I could totally do that. Although it, you know, I, I have friends who can listen to podcasts and stuff while they work, and I can't. I, I guess it's just I can't multitask. I can't do that. I, I've got to. Well, nobody really have, can really. I, so. I know, I know. I, so. I can only really just work with no music or work with music that kind of becomes white noise. Yeah. Um, but the second I try to listen to something, I, I, my brain just gets fried and I'm like, uh, I can't concentrate on anything. So it's difficult for me to listen to podcasts while I'm actually doing work. I think that's a good um, sign actually of your intention. I think when you work your intention for you personally, your intention is very strong. I don't, yeah. I can't listen to audiobooks when I'm working on things that, um, that are intense. Um, but maybe if I'm just doing, let's say like line work after like a sketch or something right, and right, it's right. kind of it's not brainless but it's not it's um, like you know ironing laundry you yes, know it's exactly. like it's mindless work yeah but it, it's yeah. it's enough to be able to pay attention to two things totally, at once totally. the time that i actually because i don't physically read a lot of books i listen to them mostly now just because that's the new form of that's the way i like to consume them now and i just i have them on my phone and i i i take i listen to them when i walk um, oh, cool. I try to do as much walking as possible. Uh, I try to do at least like 10,000 steps or so a day. It's nice. hard, it's hard to keep that when I'm really busy. Cause you know, you have to leave the house and all that stuff and becomes a challenge. But, um, yeah, I don't know. That's a practice that I do. And it actually is really helping me as far as, uh, cause I listen to a lot of self-help books, if you want to call it that, Yep. which I hate calling them that because um, it's got it's such just, a negative connotation. Yeah. yeah I know. Sounds like I need help. And yeah. I, I mean, we all do and I'm okay. I'll be the first person to admit that I'm not I totally perfect agree. and I'd like yeah. to have help, but, <laughs> but it sounds like, uh, you know, like I need help and I, I can't, <laughs> I can't handle my life without these books. Right, right. Um, it's absolutely not that it's just, I'm curious and stuff and because it's it's about the new ideas right it's about new perspectives and you need to have Uh, that we live in 2015 get out of the fucking get out of the bucket you know pull your head out of that and look at the clouds and sky like it's important i think that's a new dawn of of our of of myself personally and and i hope of the world to kind of be more self-aware and Mm -hmm. things but that fifth agreement book is really great Um, i'll definitely check it out i think it's really interesting it's on i think it's on audible um uh, there's also it's on Amazon too, and you okay, can always cool. buy it too. There's plenty of these books though that I love. Um, I was also going through the um, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, which is really fantastic as well. Cool. Incredibly complex stuff that's happening. If you really dig into what he's talking about, it gets really <laughs> psychologically heavy. So it's, okay. it's, I had to go through it kind of slowly, um, but. Yep. Yeah, those are a couple of the things that I'm really into. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the role that you do, um, just so people know. It's kind of cool that we've had an hour of conversation. We haven't really talked about the specifics of what you do just yet. But <laughs> right. for those that don't know, what exactly is a texture artist and what, what does your job fulfill and kind of your potential, uh, what, what, what you're contributing to a film? So I'm going to assume that the people listening don't know what 
CG is, computer-generated imagery is. So from a basic layman perspective, a texture artist or texture painter, uh, what we do is we basically get a digital model um, and it basically looks like a clay sculpture in the computer, um, but it's all digital, obviously. There's no physical um, basis to it. And we basically paint uh, different attributes onto the surface of the model uh, that help define the material and texture quality of that set object or asset. Uh, so, for example, if we're painting a piece of wood, uh, we have to paint specific maps that drive different surface qualities of that wood to get it to look like that piece of wood. Um, and the basic ones are color, uh, bump or displacement, so how you know bumpy or, or displaced the surface is with grooves and whatever, uh, and then specularity or reflection, uh, basically how shiny the object is. Those are basically the three uh, primary maps that we paint to help conceive the look of an object. Uh, and then that is then rendered and put into a shot and either animated or whatever. Uh, so we basically digitally paint on these models to make them look uh, realistic. Damn, that was a, an amazingly, like you're, you're really well-spoken. I love how clear and concise you are with your words. It's really, it's, uh, I love that. I can't stand it when I talk to somebody and they use the word like way too many times it drives me nuts and i used to do it all the time and i totally understand and it makes sense it's it's a kind of like a weird um i call it it's kind of like a a language uh like cancer i don't know what it is but it's it's uh yeah it's really challenging but the way that you're explaining things in in a very clear and concise way i appreciate it because that's a very (laughs) well thought out way of explaining that and uh it it's it comes from a lot of time recording demos and listening to myself and saying and and listening to it and saying oh my god i said (laughs) um like 50 times in that one (laughs) sentence yeah yeah so (laughs) you have to just force yourself to not say um but just pause yes and don't say anything and think and then speak yeah i think what it is um from what i've acquainted it to my own self is because i've recorded stuff as well obviously the podcast has helped me tremendously with being more uh being clearer with my intentional word but one of the things that um, has happened, see, I just use um, is you're trying to fill the space so that you don't exactly. get interrupted because the way we speak and communicate now is much faster and we're constantly talking over one another to explain one another. Yes. And I think there is, we've created little devices like and um <laughs> to fill the space so that there's there's no, there's a bridge between everything. Totally. So it's one continuous thought rather than, uh, taking your time and speaking very slowly or being very concise. Uh, and yeah. it's almost I, a lot of the guys that I talk to that are a bit older, um, or more experienced in life. They speak, uh, a little bit slower, uh, right. because they come from a different era and it's, it's kind of interesting to, to, to notice these things. Um, but the conversations I have with them are so deep, you know, you have a conversation yes. with somebody who's let's say 70 years old and has experienced 70 years and then 40 years past you. Um, I doubt you're going to hear them using the word like 
and ums to fill up the space between Agreed. the words. And that says a lot about what that, what that person is and what they're conveying, at least to me, you know? Yeah. Could say a lot about that and connect that to where films are now too, and editing and film style and all that stuff as well. Mm-hmm. You know, everything is just so bam, 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 you know, like it, it is, so. it is, you know, <laughs> it, it's, it's, uh, it's in terms of like speaking eloquently, that's actually one of the reasons I love Tarantino films and Fincher films is the the dialogue and like Aaron Sorkin's writing, mm. uh, especially in like the social network, even, you know, oh, yeah. uh, Django, latest uh, Tarantino film, just listening to the way they speak is just, it's methodic and it's musical and it's it's got this rhythm to it that's so easy to listen to. But uh, it's very complex and it's nature yes, behind the yeah. curtain and stuff. And the- I love it. it it's It's so enjoyable for me to listen to that stuff it's got to be pretty difficult i imagine for um the guys that are writing are brilliant writers like that to sit through and and watch <laughs> just stuff in general and yeah. all they, they're they're probably having a hard time um just sitting through it basically you know yeah totally yeah <laughs> can't imagine but yeah and so you you're a lead artist too so um yes about how so, many, like what's that entail like what's that position look like from your perspective well it really depends on what studio studio you're at uh there's leads and supervisors so for instance at ILM the job that I'm doing that I was doing at say image engine and all the tasks that it entails would be considered a supervisor texture supervisor role at ILM. But because image engine was a smaller studio and you know, whatever it was, you know, relinquished to a lead title. And there's some politics with that, but that's basically, it's basically the same thing. So my role at Sony as a texture lead or texture supervisor, I think it's it's really only it's interchangeable depending on how big the show is you're on. So, for instance, currently I'm on Alice in Wonderland two, and the it's a massive show, and I have seven texture painters that are working under me. Wow! So that's a big jo- that, that's a big job. Yeah, in that capacity, I would be considered a supervisor. Uh, and depending on you know what the other producers and other supervisors think at the end of the day when the credits come, um, but if I were to be at Sony on a smaller show where it's basically me and one other person, it would probably be just the lead title. But the job is the same, and that job is basically to be the point person for the department to communicate with all the other departments and make sure that what we're doing is meeting the standards of not only the director, but the visual effects supervisors. If there are two, uh, in our case, we have two supervisors and uh, basically all the other departments and making sure that our work is flowing through the pipeline seamlessly. And I also spend a lot of time not only troubleshooting issues that my artists are having, whether it's pipeline related or specifically texture painting related, as well as bidding i bid work so i give estimates on how long things will take uh i also review work of my artists so i'll do desk rounds and see what they're doing and making sure that everybody's got what they need if they have any issues and then i also schedule so i do a lot of scheduling making sure people are kept busy at all times sure so uh, multi multitasking then yeah, yeah. yeah. and then so on top most of your all day of is that, spent doing just kind of task actually no 
lately it has been because I haven't had a lot of work. But on top of all of that, I'm also in charge of doing the most important or hardest assets on the show. Oh, okay, that's so, cool. At least you keep yeah. your feet wet and like you keep pushing, you know. So you're oh, in, for in the sure. trenches. Like, so. Yeah, I I refuse to take a supervisory role or a lead role that doesn't allow me to be on the box at least seventy five percent of the time. Oh, that's cool uh, because that's a very quick way to become irrelevant at a studio. Yeah. Uh, so I make it a point to, to make sure that I'm doing the hardest and best work. So I stay like we've talked about before, stay relevant. Um, I, so that's in, in a, in a nutshell, that's basically the job. Also, when you're on the floor doing the work, you can, you can get a sense for, you know, the urgency of things and you can kind of sense, you know, um, what it is that is important and what isn't and stuff. Yes. Uh, bring up, bringing up that Elon Musk thing. You should really check out his book if you haven't already. Okay. Um, I think it's, uh, I'll look it up. It's his most recent book, the name of it. But um, he, they were saying also when they hired the the, the car designer for the Tesla, um, he, like Elon, obviously very busy guy between SpaceX and SolarCity and Tesla. Yeah. But when he would be at SpaceX, when they're designing and building the Tesla car, the designer of the car would be really close to him and they would constantly converge so they would know the intentions of one another. And so for right. somebody that's as prolific as Elon is uh, to be conversing with this guy constantly, it just goes to show how important it is to be on the ground level, to be there, to be um, willing and able to put your, get your hands your hands dirty and to do the work because that way it's going to give you a sense of what you're doing and how to do it and stuff. So totally, which is really interesting though. Cause a lot of the times the directors I know, um, they don't know how to draw or they don't know how to even use Photoshop and, um, <laughs> but they manage to get themselves to where they are. I don't know what that is, how that works. I think a lot of it's trust. Um, yeah. Uh, or it, it's, it's earned. Um, David Fincher, for example, just, you know, just, so. yeah, David, it's David Fincher's a David craftsman. Fincher. Though for sure, though. yeah, yeah. I mean, he's he's a jack of all trades. Yeah. Uh, but uh, it's some of these directors. I, I I chalk it up to good managers and agents. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, 100%. they have they they've done really nothing. And then all of a sudden, they're in, in charge of a two hundred fifty million dollar film. Yeah, it's tr- crazy. It's crazy. <laughs> yeah, it's it crazy. is. You know, but then you get like, for example, you have J.J. Abrams. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know, yeah. like the films before. I think he did some like Gone Fishing or some bullshit. I can't remember. Well, he was he came from TV, right? He did Alias, right? Yeah, I think it was Alias. Andrew, do you know what f- he did? A film prior? Could you look that up for us? Really Super quick? Eight. Uh, no, no, not Super Eight. It was just way before it. There was a film that he directed or wrote. I can't remember. I think it was Gone Fishing or something. Before like some kind- what? Like before wait, is Gone Fishing that Joe IMDb. Pesci? Let's see. Is Joe is Gone Fishing that Joe Pesci, uh, Danny Glover film? Uh, there's something I remember looking it up, and I was like, "What the hell? You went from like gone some kind of like hokey." His directing thing. is it goes Felicity, Lost, Alias, Mission Impossible. Uh, like, did he write Gone Fishing? Uh, I'm trying to look. I'm trying to see because oh, yeah. I remember seeing gone that fishing. film. When, oh man, I remember seeing that film when I was a kid. Yeah, I love that movie. There's something I have to yeah, look at. Yeah, it is Danny Glover and Joe Pesci. Yeah, <laughs> it's awesome. so ridiculous. <laughs> it's ridiculous. It's totally ridiculous. But you have, you know, you. So there's different guys, right? You know, JJ is a unique character as far as what what's going on in the industry now. But um, yeah, you look at Alias, and then there's there's a there's a bit of a jump. There's some producer stuff, some executive producer stuff. I know. Yep. I, I associate those as being kind of outside observer and building mm-hmm. it out. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you have boom, Star Trek, you know, uh, there's, there's a three year gap between that. Um, but you know, Star Trek itself, 
was a bit of work, you know? So oftentimes I like to just sit there and kind of study from afar, you know, and look at these people, um, and what they're doing and also be really aware of the time frame. you know? Um, right. Time frames, everything. Yeah. You look at Stanley Kubrick's timeline, he's producing a film in very big gaps between it, you know, but Mm -hmm. that's his style. Then you look at Chris Nolan, um, which I found out a really interesting fact about him, which I couldn't believe. I don't know what, why I didn't. I was talking to a friend of mine from the UK and he has, you know, this amazingly beautiful UK accent, like the Harry Potter accent. It's really you know, what I, what I say, what it does to, to, to Americans is it kind of like, Oh yes, whatever you say, master, like <laughs> it's this funny thing that happens. Yeah. And I learned that, um, Chris Nolan actually like, learned and acquired a uk accent so that he could just you know be that much more manipulative you know? really yeah i learned that i was like Where, what wait where's he from he's from the states because if you look if you i think he's from the states from what i remember but if you look at like if you listen to his brother yeah because him and his brother make all this stuff if you listen right. to his brother his brother sounds just like me like brash really? american and just talking shit and i remember listening to his brother talk and i was like hey what the heck? <laughs> it's oh really God. fascinating. Yeah. Uh, that, that, that totally reminds me. When I was uh, living in Europe, I remember going to this, this authentic Haagen-Dazs ice cream store. And it had silver spoons and it looked legit and it looked amazing. It was like red carpet. And then years later, I find, find out Haagen-Dazs is an American company. Hmm. And it was made to look expensive and European. Yeah. And it's a completely American company. It just shattered my bubble completely. Uh, and so did this Chris Nolan accent thing. That's crazy. Well, actually, I, I stand corrected. I'm totally wrong in this. He was born in London. So, oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. So I'm, I'm just talking shit. My sources were wrong. <laughs> <laughs> but maybe, I mean, but if you go and listen to uh, his brother, um, what's his brother's name? Jonathan John- Nolan? Yeah, yeah, Jonathan Nolan. Yeah. Let me look him up. Maybe John was make, fucking born in the States or something. No, like, Maybe he learned an American accent. Maybe he, yeah, you know, like they're, <laughs> they're hitting it from both sides. I mean, uh, nothing but respect for the guys. They're, ma- they're making it happen. Well, John was born in London as well. So, huh. yeah. Well, I mean. Interesting stuff, it's, man. It's interesting, though, because like you look at when, you know, we circle back to the the timeline and stuff and and people's careers now you can look at david fincher I and mean, he started in music videos and then went into films yeah uh and then you look at people like daniel day lewis who does a film once every 10 years and every time he does a film he gets an oscar <laughs> yeah yeah whereas then you look at someone like who is who is it i think it's uh christopher walken he refuses to turn down roles he'll do anything that's put in front of him Whoa. And so you'll look at his I'm gonna film. Write, I'm gonna send him something. I'm gonna write something for. Yeah, <laughs> you'll, you'll you'll look at his filmography and you're like, wow, it really is all over the place. Yeah, it is totally all over the place because he believes in you know work is a gift, and I'm never gonna turn down work. <laughs> uh, so that's cool. I didn't know that about him. He's a very yeah, unique character. Really he's, is. He's such a great. I love him, man. I love the the films that he's done. He's a, he brings a lot of. He brings, brings a lot of flavor to the things that he does. Um, yeah. I'm a big, huge fan you, of that stuff. You see him in films like, uh, uh, you know, I guess what's the most recent one he was in? The last one I can think of that I really loved was Catch Me If You Can, but I love right. that film. Right. So. so you see Catch Me like Catch Me If You Can, and then he's in a film like Joe Dirt. 
Yeah, it's true. And yeah. you're thinking, where did, what was his agent and manager just thinking? Yeah. And then you realize, well, he'll, he'll just take anything. So it's like, okay, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I dig that though. I kind of, yeah, I kind cool. of appreciate that. From- I totally do. I totally respect that because, you know, you never know when it's going to end and you want to ride this wave as long as you can. So, yeah, I, I think that what's kind of challenging though is like, you know, for Daniel Day Lewis is the pressure, you know? Yes. I was talking a bit about this pressure um with andrew because we talked about inside out because i just saw have you seen inside out yet? i haven't yet i haven't okay. i hear good things though yeah i wouldn't t- i won't talk about it mo- at all um much at all but I, I i really appreciate it and i loved it but i think what's happening is pixar is so fucking good and they're killing it and they've been killing it for so long that when you when you go and watch like a film like the incredibles or um nemo or something it's really hard to top that you know Really it's is. like a Babe Ruth kind of thing. Even yep. though there's better players or whatever that come along, everybody's going to have this whole like Babe Ruth thing burned into their head. And yep. I think it's challenging now for a company like Pixar who made Inside Out. I personally loved it. Uh, it's it's a, a really great experience. But then you have people that are like, you know, complaining that it's not great. And I go, on what spectrum is it not great? Like, you know, it's a kind of like this it's weird the issue. Yeah. It's just the haters. Andrew's fucking hater. <laughs> I'm not a hater. <laughs> You're a fucking hater. I, just, I don't know. I'm a hater too, though. Like, I have problems with certain films too. But that's, I think that's a lot of the times, though, it's just your own personal preference, you know, and having that and understanding what that is. I think that's great, but I think it's important to be, to, to, um, to articulate it in a form that isn't just like, that film sucks, you know, right, it has to be right. like an articulated opinion that has these reasons and things and why. So Andrew and I, we have quite a few debates about that stuff. So. Well, maybe Andrew will like this, uh, this post I saw recently. It, it's the timeline of Pixar films. Have you guys seen this? No. I oh haven't. yeah. I have. Seen yeah. That. So it says Pixar 1995. What if toys had feelings? Pixar 1998. What if bugs had feelings? <laughs> and it goes all the way down to, and in the last three Pixar 2009, what if dogs had feelings? <laughs> Pixar 2012, what if Scotland had feelings? And then Pixar 2015, what if feelings had feelings? <laughs> and I that's thought it awesome. was hilarious. Yeah, I mean, that's another thing I was going to say too is, um, you know, because uh, Andrew said that there's some, there's some bullshit that people are saying that The Incredibles was heavily influenced by The Watchmen. And I, I never even thought of that, connecting that it thing. It is, dude. That's bullshit. <laughs> the funny thing is that I thought that before I had read it. Like, I watched it and I was like, whoa, that was really similar to Watchmen. And then I went on Google <laughs> and looked it up. And, like, there's a lot of other people who think it, too. Well, okay, this, this is the thing with that is The Watchmen is written by a genius. And yes. he understands hero films and stories very well and the incredibles happens to be a hero film so people are gonna go is a fucking watchman remake like come on fuck off it's more it's more than that brad bird sitting in there and you know you know what i want i really want this to feel more like the watchman because this is gonna be (laughs) fucking perfect for the kid no way man i don't think so i mean that's just my opinion i just i can't buy that and i think what that tells me is people will reach no matter what for the conclusions that they want and that's just it, you know? Yeah. People yeah. are going to have their opinions. And that's why I think that the advice from that fifth agreement is bought on when you talk about don't take anything personal because you can't because right. it doesn't mean anything. Yeah. You know, I actually wanted to circle back to that, uh, taking things personally. You know, one thing I think people need to learn, especially, I don't know what it is, but I think it's mainly because a lot of texture painters that are hired, not a lot of them, but few of them come from traditional painting backgrounds where they're painting their own art. Sure. And so they work in this environment where they're 
painting these textures for these assets and they have this strange possessiveness over it. And so I remember distinctly, I was in dailies while working on Rango and there is this one artist who her work was up and our supervisor was looking at it and he says, you know what, this jacket looks good, but it's a little too red. Let's take some of the red out. Let's introduce a little bit more green. And she went on this five minute discourse about why she put the red in there and why it needs to be there. Hmm. And I'm just kind of sinking in my seat thinking, oh my God, what are you doing? This is not your artwork. If he wants it to be pink, you make it pink. Yeah. You know, this is not your work. So, <laughs> you know, the possessiveness and, and knowing that, you know, this isn't yours is a, is definitely a lesson that people need to learn, especially when you're doing creative painting in that sense. And I don't think it's so much more when you're doing like compositing or something or maybe lighting because it's more based off of what you're trying to match. But when you have these purely artistic decisions, uh, I think a lot of texture painters believe that, you know, I made this decision with truth and now it's mine and kind of that bullshit there. Uh, so <laughs> but at the same yeah. time, she probably realized that day that, well, I should go and be a, an art director or something like that. You know, well, she wasn't kept very much longer. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, well, you know, maybe that's a, that's a, you know, it might look as a curse or something, but it actually might be, a, might've been a blessing. Yeah. You know? yeah maybe, so maybe, maybe you never know. Yeah. Uh, but in terms of, uh, Watchmen, uh, what did you guys think of the film? Cause I worked on that film and, and, I might be the only person that actually liked it in the world, I think. Because everybody is like, oh, my God, it sucks. It's not the it. same like, as a book. Ah. And it's like, of course, it's not going to be the fucking same as a book. If, if it was verbatim to the book, it would not be a movie. It would be a book. It's uh, probably the most verbatim movie that was ever made. I, my my I, issue with it is that it was visually verbatim, but like thematically and like all the best parts of Watchmen are not conveyed verbatim. Right. Like okay. they, they lost all the themes of it but they kept all the look of it which right. it, it was it's fun to watch but i mean in comparison to the book it's 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 nothing yeah it's not, opinion, at least. you know that's why actually you know i just had this debate recently i when when the harry potter films were coming out mm. i did you read those originally, books well i originally were re i was reading the book and seeing the film yeah and i realized every single time i hated the movie yeah you gotta it's not a, do that and so i have this thing where I think I read the first two books and then watched the first two movies and I'm like, that's it. I'm not reading the books anymore. Yeah, you can't. But then I had this huge debate with my girlfriend and some friends. They're like, no, you, you read the book so it it fills in on the gaps. So when you watch the movie, it's a fuller experience. Uh, that's I'm like, interesting. That's, that's crazy. That's not, that's not how I see it. Yeah. The whole time I'm thinking, good Lord, they just took out the best freaking part of that book. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and then you just, you're getting pulled out of that experience. Yeah, you know? yeah and I just get angry. And, yeah. But, but my girlfriend <laughs> loves reading the stuff first because then she has a fuller experience when that's she watches cool. the film. Yeah, which... I never thought of it that way. <laughs> Me but neither. It's, it's an interesting way of consuming things too. Yeah. yeah. I, I equate the thing to um, like drugs, you know, like if you're going to do drugs, um, you know, you obviously be mature enough to handle it, <laughs> right. you know? So, and to, by mature, I think most people don't even know who they are. Mm -hmm. until they're like at least 30 years old so don't do Easter. drugs until you're 30 <laughs> yeah and if you do do them do them with if you have to do them around people that you love and you care about and that care about you yes and you know it's i equate it to the same thing like you know 
okay, I've been waiting to go see fucking The Dark Knight for a decade or something. It's finally here. So I'm going to go drive out to the desert at 120 degree heat. I'm going to take my iPhone and I'm going to sit in the desert and watch this with the glare and no (laughs) headphones. Come on, people. Seriously, design your experiences properly. Like, don't fuck it up. Like, Uh, yeah, it's really Uh, annoying when I I hear this experience. I'm like, what the hell are you doing? (laughs) Yeah, I have this thing where whenever we go see films, I have to be there early. I don't care if I'm there two hours early. I mean, you have assigned seats in certain theaters, so it's not such a big problem. But I I have to make sure the experience is what I planned it to be. Sure. Especially seeing films that I've been waiting for for two, three years. Yep. Um, But, you know, going back to the point about surrounding yourself with like-minded people, that's actually some advice I would definitely recommend for people um, coming into the industry or or even in the industry is you've got to find people that you connect to because those are the people that will propel you in the future. Um, Those are the people that, you, you know, you'll build connections with and then later down the line, you know, something great happens and then you guys connect again uh you know being around like-minded people will ensure success i, I firmly believe that oh yeah man uh, it, so, that's in general in life you know yeah just life in, life. in industry just like yeah, in general totally. Uh, totally. your life you should have that because that's incredibly important i think i'm all about that uh, you know you are who you surround yourself with uh, exactly. at least i'm in i'm, I'm incredibly impressioned i mean so it's me really important for me that's what the podcast too i think has, has been a great adv- device for many people as they get to have conversations with you and so many other people and they can kind of get a sense of who that person is and get a little you know a weekly dose of inspiration or thoughts or some, something to think about to kind of push them and propel their thoughts and stuff, you know, it's a great device, I think, as far as how it works. Um, and that's why we kind of designed and created it, but to go back to Watchmen, I, I I really enjoyed it. And I think to go back to about experiences, um, I did read the graphic novel and I loved it. And I think it's a fucking brilliant piece. It's a very Mm -hmm. unique and very special and actually had a conversation with Dave Gibbons, uh, I think a com- Comic Con ago or something. Oh, I, nice! I was lucky enough to hang out and have dinner right next to him, and that was amazing because he's a he's a freaking master, you know. So yeah. anytime you get to sit with a master and, and and get any kind of time with that kind of person, like soak it up. And we talked a little bit about the experience and stuff for him, and I think for me, I just really. I, I had to disconnect myself from the graphic novel. There was no way, but there was a lot of verbatim, I thought. And I think that there obviously were missing themes and stuff, which I think was what upset most people. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it is such a, like, I wouldn't know if I, if I were to take on the task with making the Watchmen, I'd probably approach it like they did, um, true detective, which is 12 right. episodes, a longer experience. So you Series. can really get deep into the comedian. You understand mm-hmm. what his intentions are. Yeah. Um, you, cause, um, what's happening now, as far as what way I see films and things being made is they're, Longer formats are necessary now. You have totally Breaking Bad's proven it. Game of Thrones is actually proving it for guys like us because it's showing us that we can still have a job continuously. Because Game of Thrones production is huge, huge, massive. It's, huge. it's bigger. It looks better than most films. I agree. And it's a television show. Yeah. So what we need is we need like uh, the Watchmen, for example. A lot of times, I think when things fail is because they don't have enough time to breathe. And I think that's might be the situation with that. People mm-hmm. didn't have enough time to sit with these characters to understand and analyze them and, and know that their intentions are coming from that, you know? So, and the thing with the graphic novel, I mean, Andrew, did you read the graphic novel all in one sitting? Um, pretty much. I mean, maybe not one sitting, but very few sittings. 
three sittings, maybe four sittings. Yeah. Okay. When you went and watched the movie, it's one short experience. So what I'm getting at psychologically, I think what's important is to have these continual long experiences you know your mm-hmm. brain disconnects you go off and eat some chipotle and you're <laughs> playing with kittens <laughs> and all these things that you do and then you go back and you get into that world and it there's something that happens i think there and i think it's the same thing that happens with the netflix the 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 totally you just look at the like business daredevil and daredevil's you know. going yeah daredevil's working it's becoming a thing it's it's actually a lot house of these of things cards are working. is house, a big deal man house of cards is brilliant and it's beautiful and they're very smart at how they set that up and they had fincher start it you know like yeah, i know you know, I you, know. And they would just carry the, the torch you know very smart i'm i'm really paying attention to all of this stuff because it's in, incredibly important and everybody that's listening to this podcast if you're interested in this industry you should definitely be paying attention to this stuff because trends are happening and be very aware of them because if you're not, then you're just going to get left behind, you know? And I, I honestly think I'm not trying to be a dick, but the future is not in feature films. It's not in theaters. It's not, that's not I, where it's going. I totally agree. I totally yeah. agree because, you know, the big problem with episodic TV in the past or even now is that people's attention spans, we want it now, now, now. So Netflix understands that and they're like, Hey, we'll just do the whole thing and yep. give them all the episodes at once. Yep. So they can, if they want to binge watch it, they can. Yep. And it, it's, genius that must have been the biggest argument in these boardrooms too when somebody is trying to pitch that idea oh we need to release it now because we need to get return on investment instantly you know it's like no wait a year like give me a year it's like fuck off a year you know (laughs) so i I totally agree i think you know there there will always be a place for film but you you look at the the profits in movies versus the profit in video games you know grand theft (laughs) auto made 500 million dollars in one day yeah one day. <laughs> and that's yeah. that would be a lifetime for some films. Yeah. Or so, not even films that can't, won't even touch it. Not even, not even touch to it. it. Yeah. Uh, but the fact uh, the fact that Furious 7 made a billion in what, 17? I that, don't understand that, was, that. But that's not for I me. Think, I think it's the Paul Walker death and, and all the hype around it. I still haven't seen the film. Um, but I don't watch those films, though. But they're not made for me. Like, I can't. Like, right. That's right. like somebody making me like pouring diarrhea into my face or something like i just <laughs> I, like i'm gonna i'm gonna say it publicly i just hey i hate that stuff like it's just i don't care about it and it doesn't do anything Dude, for fast me fast five is undeniably enjoyable <laughs> you should just if you even if you haven't seen I all so the other ones just watch these. fast five it's so fun I just that's, what, that's what people say it's fun yeah yeah i mean it, i totally get it and it makes sense it makes me feel like I'm an alien on a weird planet, though, every time. No, no, I, I totally agree with you because yeah. I feel like, you know, we are, we're losing original content. So the films most recently that have been original, the most recent one is Tomorrowland, and that bombed. And it really yeah. hurts me because we need more material like that. Yeah. You know, sequels... I hate working on sequels, to be honest. Yeah, and, and, you, and a I lot hate, of them are on your, on your, on your roster, too. You know, yeah, so. I know, and, and it... it it's just part of your your the what you're doing though. It's, it's your, part of what it is, but yeah. you know, in terms of making good movies, we we can't just keep doing reboots and remakes and sequels. I mean, it's a safe bet though, and that's why it's the totally industry is dying bet. and it's and it's and it's bleeding and it's showing it openly. It's showing us the cards basically. Yeah, and, and then so when you get a film like Fast Seven that makes a billion in less than three weeks, it perpetuates the cycle. It's yeah. Like, oh, yeah, let's just keep doing this. It's making do us a ton eight. of money. Yeah, we'll do yeah. fast eight because we're gonna make we will get a return on investment. You know, exactly. We all want so, our money, so I, yeah, I get that. It makes sense. It's just I think for guys like us that really care, like wholesomely care about what it is and the things that we love, it just hurts. Basically, it's just like wow, like 
Yeah. It, 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 and, and, I, and it's kind of ridiculous that we would think that it would not be like this. So, you know, it's kind of unrealistic that we would think that, yeah, you know, everybody should love these things and we shouldn't do it yeah. just for money. That's kind of a really kind of childish way of looking at it. It's yeah. all money. It's all driven by money. Everything, totally the intentions. Business. Yeah. But then like, you know, we talk about, I, I'll bring up Star Wars as a case study. Of course it's money. But when, when George was making it, I think of course he was thinking money every day he had to, because he was yes. spending it, uh, just throwing it away basically. But he had the intention of creating something new and unique of his own creation. Yeah. And I yeah. think that's what people latch onto. It's many things, but that's what makes Star Wars a special a case study in my perspective, you know, especially the first two, you know, after yeah, when the third totally. one hits, the, the, the things were, the rhythm was changing, obviously, in the way it was being made. Uh, I, asked, I asked openly to everybody recently on Facebook and Twitter, like, what's your favorite Star Wars film out of all of them and why? And the consensus is Empire Strikes Back. Empire Strikes Back, hands down. And, and George didn't even direct that. I know. Um, and it, it does a lot of things, too, you know. And I think it's really in- interesting to study these things as well. Yeah, no, totally. So. Like, one director I'm really in love with now is Alex Garland. Uh, who just recently directed Ex Machina or Machina, where whatever you want to yeah. how you pronounce it. Yeah. Um, and he's he's doing this original stuff. I yes. mean, yeah. he he's an original. Originally, he was an author. He's a writer. I mean, he wrote The Beach, I believe, and then somehow got into making films. He he wrote uh, Sunshine, which is one of my all-time favorite sci-fi films. Yeah, me too. It's that's a really obscure one too. Not a lot so of people obscure. know. Yeah, there's uh, a, there's some errors that happen in there, but it's 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 a lot of fun. Yeah. It's it, yeah, it's just different, right? Yes. And you know, he he pushes that. He pushes different and uh, I'm really I really love that people like him can exist because we need films like that. And X Machine is a great example of of a uh, a fantastic film. Yes, there are holes, whatever, but sure. it's original content. It's got great visual effects, beautiful visual effects. Beautiful, yeah. Uh, and it's just, it's one of those films that's special. And Very that's, special. that's my goal is I just want to work, I want to try to at least aim towards working on films that can be special. I know Alice in Wonderland 2 is not going to be special, but <laughs> it was it was a means to an end yeah. in terms of a position sure. and what that means in the future. But my goal is always the work. I think that's priority number one for me is, you know, I, I made a conscious decision to stay at Image Engine for as long as I did, knowing that, yeah, I may work on films that I didn't want to work on, but I wanted to kind of stay at one spot. But ultimately, after being there, you know, I had a great experience, but it still drives me is, is the, the work. Sure. I, I want to be working on stuff that I want to see. I want to be work, working on stuff that I'm proud of that I want my family to see. And it, it doesn't mean anything if I'm painting chipmunks or you know, Smurfs. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, I me, mean, the name about, says it all. It's an image engine. It's about making images, it's not about yes. making uh, stories and stuff like yeah. that. So, yeah. you know, the, the writing's on the wall there, but I think to, to your point too, I, I really admire Alex's career. I, I think I'm fucking, I love it. It's a, it's uh, sunshine. I remember seeing it nobody even talked about it. And then I, I watched it randomly. Um, a friend of mine, I think suggested it. And I was like blown away by how freaking awesome it was in its yeah. own right. There's totally, there's some unforgivable things that happen. For but sure. at the same time, I don't really care because 
I'm having so much fun and it's so much better than anything that was out at the time. So I was like, oh, this is great. I'm having a lot of fun with it. Same with Ex Machina or Machina or whatever. Yeah. It, it was a lot of fun. It, actually, if you're not, if you if you haven't watched it yet, I think, uh, I think I bring this show up every episode and people are like, dude, stop talking about it. But <laughs> I love um, Black Mirror is a good example. And it kind of, if you haven't, have you seen Black Mirror? The no, show? what is oh, that? You'll be, you're going to love oh. it then. Yeah, just wait. I won't say anything. Just go watch it. That's it. And also watch Utopia because Utopia, um, oh, these okay. are two shows that are coming from the UK. And I think the UK is able to um, be a little bit more edgy and create and create content that's actually like good. Like, because right. the stuff that you have in America, I'm sorry, it just most of it sucks yeah no i agree it's very surface level and i think they think their their audiences are stupid or something because it's very frustrating but they sell like you know shows like csi like fucking tons of people watch it so (laughs) i don't know what to say and i think um i don't want to sound like an asshole but i have my opinions so whatever you know so right everybody has their own taste you know there's certain connoisseurs i think because we are so embedded in the industry and we're so close to it we have a certain palette for certain things and stuff so Mm mm-hmm but yeah, definitely. I think Alex is to get back to him. I think it's great. And what you're saying, like it would be great. Cause that's probably like a really great dream project. I imagine for you is to work. Oh and, man, and that would have been that. amazing. Yeah. Cause you'd be like, wow, like I'm so pumped and I love this film. And I, you know, I contributed to this, what this thing has account, like a equation. Yeah, I to. really, I really felt like, uh, Chappie was going to, was going to do that. You know, I, I, I just, it had all the right elements. Mm. Uh, it got terrible reviews. I didn't uh, see it, but it. I'm. It's the, the best work I've done to date. I'm really proud of the work, but I just it, it didn't hit. Sick. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it, it just it didn't hit the mark in terms of the storytelling and and what it, and uh, quite frankly the marketing for it was completely misleading. Mm. It made it seem way more grand and uh, epic than it actually is, mm. uh, and. Yeah, I had really high hopes for that one. So that stung a bit when when people didn't really react uh, the way I, I guess I thought they were going to react. But, you know, I worked, I, I mean, I've worked on two of Neil Blomkamp's, of his three films. And, yeah, and both too, of them, yeah. Elysium, I thought was going to be cool, but then that bombed as well. So, <clears throat> you know, you and can only hope for the best. I had a hard time with Elysium personally. I, I really enjoyed District 9. Yeah, I, oh, I, I love I, District 9. Yeah, I really wonder what happened between these films because something really important as far as story uh, is concerned changed well, significantly th- for me. But Yeah, I, I think what happened with Elysium is it just became a, a, a big budget production. So yeah. he lost the the humanity of it. But that's why I thought Chappie was going to be good because he went back to his roots, smaller crew, you know, doing it on the cheap and doing it kind of guerrilla style. But I think it just... I think it was, there were a lot of issues, I think, with the casting of, of D'Antward and uh, the way people, the general re- general public reacted to, you know, Ninja and Yolandi, which I, I understand mm-hmm. there, there are a lot to take in uh, yeah. if you don't know who they are. I love, sure. that was like one of my favorite parts of it, but that I guess was probably because I was a fan that, of their that stuff. That was one of my favorite parts too. Yeah. And I was like, man, people are going to, because I actually, okay, I actually didn't think their performances were as bad as people thought they were. I thought they were pretty good. Like mommy or Yolanda, yeah. like her parts. Her I, part was great. So emotional. Yeah. And, and for someone, for these people who don't actually act, I thought, man, this is, I mean, th- 
this is great. Like, yeah. you look at Megan Fox and Transformers, and she ruins every scene she's in. But <laughs> these guys really hold their own in a strange, obscure way. Yeah. Uh, and I just, I was really bummed that people were were just thinking the whole time, God, this guy, I hate this guy. I don't want to see him on screen. He's annoying. Yeah. <laughs> I thought ironically that like, um, what's her name, Sigourney Weaver was the worst performance. The worst. The, yeah. it, was a, it was a bad she's character for her. Traditionally, the best actor. Yeah. In any- She's in, it was very it almost seemed I know it isn't but it almost seemed like a contractual obligation like yeah. oh you have this obligation to you know the studio to do one more film like Ed Norton did for the Italian job um, <laughs> where it's like okay fine I'm going to do it but I knew she wanted to get on the project because it's Neil Blomkamp but yeah just and I thought you know Hugh Jackman as a villain is a great thing you know I really feel like Elysium would have been a better film if they would have reversed uh, Charlto Copley and Matt Damon. Yes, and I, I think, said the exact same thing, and you I remove think, Matt Damon completely, and you just have you just talk about the story from one guy whose yeah. life ruined, and then he takes over. You know, that's, that's, but that's even all having Matt Damon, if you have to keep him, because obviously they needed a big name, this, put him sells, as the villain. Yeah. Put him as the villain. He's never been a villain. That would have been a great. Well, he has thing. talented Mr. Ripley, which is well, kind sure, of, yeah, but I mean, like in one of those kind of epic big blockbuster type of things yeah yeah i I just think it would have been more interesting because quite frankly i couldn't really take charlotte copley seriously with his south african accent as a villain uh he just didn't seem as intimidating as scary as obviously they're trying to portray him but anyway uh yeah you know it's tough stuff man and it's hard i know what you're saying and and we're sitting here critiquing films that are pain for us to live (laughs) so you don't want to bite the hand that feeds you but at the same time you know, you speak your mind. Fuck it. You know, like if, if, if like we talked about like that girl, who, like we, you said that girl who was like, this is color red because all these right. intentions right. and stuff. Well, maybe what your pure intention is going to be is to make your own films, you know, yeah. like maybe I mean, that's it. And by, by analyzing that, studying it and understanding it, because that's what I got to. I was bitching about stuff way too much. And I was like, all right, I need to stop talking shit and just go make my own. And I realized how hard it is. It's incredibly difficult. It it's is. not It's not as easy as it is as you th- sit there in the theater and go, well, why the fuck did they cast that guy? Well, yeah. dude, that decision was made 10 years ago. You know, exactly. like you have no clue. And, yeah. and things just suck to you because they suck. And that's what it is. It's not made for you. That's what I've associated with, though. It's like, this just isn't made for me. And it's not. And that's okay. You know, it's okay to know yeah. that it's not made for me. It, it just it's it's strange to me that such a, such a creative industry is driven by by business minded people. Yeah, uh, you know, yeah, you have heads of studios that I don't know. They don't come from art, and yeah, they need to be business oriented because it is a business. But sure, I I only hope that they have artistic people around them that help them make these decisions. And in a lot of cases, it doesn't seem like that because you get films like, you know, I guess, you know, all this junk that comes out that is just white noise um, that makes a lot of money, but uh, it's disposable stuff. Yeah, it it totally is. It's a matter of having the right people in in charge and doing the right things, you know, and yeah, um, it's, it's, and then the other thing is it's hard to tell, you know, I haven't seen Chappie, so I can't say really anything on it. It's just, like it just didn't seem like after Elysium, I was like, all right, that's enough for me. Like I'll I just go watch I, District I totally Nine. Agree. So and like even like you had Jodie Foster talk about you know powerhouse actresses and stuff and just well they had to redub her entire dialogue. Wow. So she Crazy. originally did the film in a fully thick 
French accent. And they screened it and people were like, "Mm, we don't like that. We don't understand what she's saying. So they literally had to do ADR and Foley for her entire performance. And so knowing that, watching the film, I was like, oh God, I can totally see it. I mean, obviously if you don't know it, it's, it's less easy to detect, but it really changed the performance. You know, it, it's it's like when the first Spider-Man film came out. I don't know if you guys remember the very first trailer, and I I can't find it. I saved it somewhere years years ago, but I can't find it. the very first trailer. It was this bank heist scene. Oh yeah, I've seen that. And yeah, and it's a web between the twin towers. Mm, that's so right. Nine eleven yeah. yeah. hit. They that entire it was like one third of the film they scrubbed yeah and so they had to redo the entire movie and you could kind of feel that when you're watching it it just felt fragmented and it felt disjointed and it didn't really work yeah uh, because they had to change it and it's kind of like that you know it's true you it messes with the whole rhythm of everything yeah, and you really would have thought you know you're working on this movie and then all of a sudden this in- incredibly horrible tragedy happens i know and then it affects so many things. You would never even think it would affect, you know, some group of CG artists and editors and people on this film called Spider-Man, but it does. And it's crazy to yeah. think that it does, you know? And, yeah. And, you know, even I think to myself, it, let's say, let's use a case study, for example, a person um, spends their whole life saving up, they're working shitty jobs, and they're just saving up to do this thing to make this company, and they get it off the ground. And then the the, the moment that they release this commercial that they spent all this time working on, nine eleven happens, and mm-hmm. they're fucked. You know, yeah. What kind of story is that? That's an interesting story. You know, like, <laughs> yeah, it's fucked, but it's a part of it. It's a victim of circumstance, you know, and it's just yeah, kind it of really what is. it is. So, but at the same time, like you know, like you know what the fuck are you going to do? You know, life can be a struggle or it can not. And it's up to you the, the way that you look at it, you know? So, yeah, I totally, I totally agree. Same thing with these films too. You know, it's like I said, like if you like, if you're like me and you find yourself bitching about stuff a little bit too much, like go and make your own thing. Like try it. Yeah. I've got a bunch of friends who have, you know, are visual effects artists that are making their own movies. Um, that, that's their passion and it's just a stepping stone. Yeah. Uh, and if that's the case, then great because again, they have clarity and they know what they want to do. So they're going to get, get after it. Yeah. Uh, and more power to them because they're tremendous talents. So there you uh, go. Yeah. Awesome. Well, this has been an amazing conversation. I really appreciate it. There's been a lot of really awesome, um, thoughts and things exchanged between, I don't know. Your outlook on life is really great. And I really appreciate how clear and concise you speak. <laughs> and I think it's awesome that you're doing tutorials and stuff. I've been, um, yeah, I think it's really, it's been a really great interview. I really appreciate it. Is there no, anything I really that you, appreciate the time. Sorry. Is there anything else that you wanted to kind of touch, touch on before we end? Yeah. The, the last thing I actually wanted to say was the most important thing to me, uh, in terms of, of what I like to, do with my time is I I think it's really important to give back and Mm. I think it's really important I think I find that there's there's two schools of people people who like to share their knowledge and people who like to guard their knowledge Mm. and I'm obviously of the former where I, I I have no qualms with sharing explicitly what I do and I have no qualms in divulging all my knowledge because I understand at the end of the day, it's not about the tools, it's about the person. Mm. And so I think it's very important if you have the opportunity to give back to the community that you work in, you know, uh, if you, you know, there's great programs up in Vancouver, like I was talking about with Think Tank, where you can be a mentor for students or even an instructor, you know, just giving back is such an important part of the process because it, it perpetuates a positivity and a cycle that that 
uh, hopefully catches on as, and contagious with everybody else and it kind of like paying it forward. Yeah. And I, I really think it's, it's an important, almost an obligation for people in my position to do because uh, it, it comes full circle and, and I really believe in the karma of it. That's awesome. It's beautiful. And I totally agree. That's why we're doing what we're doing here too. It's one of the reasons. So I couldn't agree more when you're in a position to help, you should do it. So it's great. And you, you know, like when people are like yourself are doing it, like our, like Anthony Jones, for example, too, is just giving and, all, but at the same time s- supplying his life off of doing that, you know? So yeah, and it's helping. So yeah, I agree. Awesome. Great. Thank you so much, man. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks guys. It's been fantastic. And that does it for this week's episode. Big thank you to Justin for coming on and sharing his time with us this week. You can find links to Justin's work and all of the show notes for this week's episode at thecollectivepodcast.com slash 110, along with links to our Facebook, Twitter, and iTunes podcast page. Have an amazing day, everybody. Be powerful. Be prolific. Peace out.